Blog Talk Radio. Morning and welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty, pretty hefty topics, and uh, we do it with a number of experts and me, with my my uh, two cents worth thrown in there every now and then. And we have a special guest today, Katie Waldman uh, from Slate Magazine. She's an associate editor for Slate Magazine, and she's also a pretty uh, kick-ass writer, if you ask me. Um, I enjoy reading her things in Slate Magazine because her articles are always so comprehensive and uh, pretty well-balanced, I think. Um, And I get information from her articles that I do not necessarily get uh, in the popular media or even online. So I'm thrilled to have Katie with us. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much, and thanks for the kind words. It's great to be here. You're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> and I would recommend Slate Magazine to you folks there. I don't recommend a lot of online publications um, because I'm not a huge fan of the, the blogs as a source of news. Um, but Women's E-News and Slate, I think, are both excellent publications for really going in depth in some articles and and uh, really um, showing information as we should be getting it, I think. Today we're going to talk about the Department of Justice and rape. Department of Justice uh, came out with a report, was it two months ago, Katie? Yeah, about then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what they did was uh, it was on uh, rape, and uh, it covered a number of situations, including rape kits. And um, Katie and I have been talking a little bit off the air. We, we found, I found another story that just came out about Montana, and the Department of Justice has just issued a report on um, uh, a city in Montana where they are saying that, you know, rape is rarely uh, prosecuted. Uh, the, the people who are supposed to take care of it treat it kind of as a joke and something to do in their spare time, and they actively discourage women from reporting rape, and it's just disgusting. So the Department of Justice really uh, issues a lot of these reports. They really study a lot of these situations. And this report came out, and it shared a lot of information with us. Katie, what are some of the things that you learned when you were researching this report? Um, Well, it was a very comprehensive, as you said, report. There was a lot in there, a lot of really valuable and illuminating data. Um, One thing that the report was basically assessing is um, how effective is this reinstated Violence Against Women Act um, at getting more women to access rape kits? And basically what happened is there was the 1994 Violence Against Women Act um, that said these uh, medical rape exams need to be available to any woman who comes forward with a sexual assault accusation. Um, But the problem was the only women who were able to access the exams were often women who also reported to the police. And so in uh, 2005, uh, this a revision of the law said, no, all women who come to a hospital or a clinic or a police department should be able to get these medical rape exams free of charge. Um, and so the report is basically in the wake of that um, coming in and saying, what difference did this law make? Um, and there's some reassuring stuff there. Uh, one thing is that a lot of the states are actually already providing women free of charge uh, with rape exams, regardless of whether they go to the police or not. Um, But there's also some 
more troubling information, uh, such as the fact that rape kits are expensive. They're expensive to process. They're expensive to um, provide. And um, a, lot, a lot of times we see hospitals and care providers eating those costs because they're underfunded. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I grew up in a medical community, and, and uh, it's not all roses and, and sunshine for the medical providers, whether it be an institution or or not, uh, or an individual. And they actually have to eat a lot of uh, uh, debt that occurs in, in a number of cases, and the rape kit things are just part of it. Um, and so when people complain about the high cost of health care, um, a lot of it is because it has to, you know, just like stores adjust their prices to cover the, the certain percentage that is that is um, shoplifted, mm-hmm. medical institutions have to cover all of their expenses, and so, you know, the bills are charged accordingly. So I don't think a lot of people understand that, but um, medical institutions only have so much money, um, the same as all of us, and so uh, for them to get stuck with the payment on rape kits, uh, can be pretty pretty sad, um, but it. On the other hand, I mean, why should a woman have to pay for her own rape kit? So, in your article, Katie, you said that um, a, what was it a, a, that uh, victims um, funds that that the uh, victims compensation funds are used in some states to pay for this? Yeah. So the vast majority of funding comes from these victim compensation funds that the state sets aside, um, and those funds are pretty sweeping. They cover um, all kinds of losses uh, that victims can be recouped for. It's not just sexual assault. The problem is um, these these funds are pretty heavily tapped already, and so you get in a situation where. Um, they're just not sufficient. And as we've already seen, sexual assault sort of is a low priority for a lot of states. Um, I don't know why that is, but it's the case. And so it's the sexual assault victims and the rape kit providers that are suffering from that. Mm, yeah. Um, is there ever been a situation where a woman has been denied a rape kit because of the, the cost? I'm not sure. So the Department of Justice report did not say anything about that, and I was really grateful for yes. Um, yes. not to find anything like that. One one slightly disturbing thing that they noted is that um, women's insurance will occasionally be charged if the clinic or the hospital just says we can't afford this 500 to 1500 dollar exam, so we're going to you know kick it off to your insurance and the women are not aware of this until afterward, and it's a big, it's a big problem. Um, but that happens uh, in, a, in a minority of cases. Why would it be a big problem? Um, well, I think the insurance is not always crazy about paying for it. Um, and also just you, it's, it's something I, I would imagine that the rape victim wouldn't want to have to deal with, you know, dealing with claims and insurance. Um, when yeah. really she's asking for the most basic kind of care after this ordeal. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would also imagine, although everybody, HIPAA makes a big deal about, you know, privacy and whenever you go to a, a new doctor or, you know, a, a hospital or whatever, they always make you sign the form on privacy and it's just basically a waste of paper because there is no privacy. If you really read that stuff, your, it, your stuff is kept 
private, except for your insurance company, except for, you know, the government, except uh, for, you know, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. plus, more and more medical records are being stored online, and everyone knows that once it's online, if anyone is interested enough, they can hack it. Um, yeah, so really, there is no, there is no privacy in the medical field. So, you know, you get into that, uh, if the victim wants to keep all of this private, um, she'd have a pretty tough time of it when it, you know, if her uh, medical insurance was involved. Um, I'm going to put out our phone number here. I know it's a holiday weekend, folks, but uh, I think this is a pretty fascinating topic. So if you get a chance, give us a phone call, 646-378-0430, and join our conversation. Maybe you've had an experience uh, with a rape kit. Now, Katie, I know that when I hear rape kits, um, I think, okay, they take this information and then they store it because it's too expensive to process it. Mm-hmm. Um is that true? I know for a while there was a huge brouhaha about um, rape kits that had been stored and never processed. Yes, that is a brouhaha that is unfortunately still going on. I think there are still 400,000 unprocessed MREs, which is uh, the results of, or which is the rape kit um, in the United States. And there are laws slowly working their ways through various state uh, legislatures that are trying to force uh, law enforcement agencies to process them, but it's slow going. And, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with uh, storage and figuring out how long these kits should be stored is that evidence arose, um, DNA particularly, but not all of it. I mean, a rape kit will also consist of photographs and records of testimony and things that can be dusted off and used in a trial at a later date. So um, a big challenge for, uh, that was mentioned in this report is like finding sufficient space um, and resources to keep, keep these kids around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the volume that keeps them from being processed immediately or the cost? Why aren't they just taken and processed? Well, there's the easy answer and there's the hard answer. Um, and I think the easy answer is that police departments are really underfunded and it can cost a lot to process DNA evidence. Um, the tricky thing about that is there's all kinds of DNA murder evidence and robbery evidence and evidence for other crimes that are not sexual assault um, that get analyzed quickly and easily and are not in huge backlogs. Um, so there's something special about these crimes that's uh, preventing the kits from being analyzed. And I think it might have something to do with this sort of the lack of awareness around rape that, you know, we all still struggle with as a culture. And maybe especially in these kind of growy, masculinized communities like in the police department. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, uh, again, as I was mentioning earlier, I think that there's tremendous fear um, about rape. I think that there's this mis, uh, misinformed notion that women just left and right are claiming rape just to be uh, vindictive toward a man they don't like or to, um, you know, make up for sex that they regret or something like that, when in fact the statistics show just the opposite. 
there's just a very small percentage of women. Um, you were saying you had one report that said it was not quite 8%, and that was mm-hmm. a high, the highest figure you could find on false reporting? Yes, yeah. It was yeah. somewhere between 4 and 8%. Um, yeah. And um, I think, yeah. Yeah, and if you're one of those that has been falsely accused, of course, that's a high number. But when you look at things like, you know, false accusations for, uh, you know, other crimes, it's right in there. It's right in there with all false accusation reports on just about anything. So nevertheless, I think there's this huge fear. I I keep thinking about the Steubenville rape case, which, by the way, Mm -hmm. I just read that Brad Pitt's production company bought the rights to the Steubenville rape case. Yep. Yep, <laughs> that should be so, interesting. See what happens there. Uh, yeah, but you know, uh, from what I've read, it sounds like he's going to go at it from the approach of anonymous of the, you know, the the organization that brought it to light, rather than from the standpoint mm-hmm. of the victims. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. Um, but anyway, um, the the idea of false reporting, I think, is just a um, an un reasonable fear um, of a lot of people. I think more so, a uh, bigger reason for um, this this attitude about false uh, reports and and, uh, and uh, rape, I think the, the bigger uh, culprit is just our cultural um, prejudices. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think we were talking a little bit about this uh, offline, but I just can't imagine who this mythical woman is who is so sort of corroded by uh, shame and anger after a night of consensual sex uh, that she later regrets, that she wants to drag the guy to court, possibly ruin his life, to relive her own, you know, unfortunate or regretted experience in hours of testimony surrounded by lawyers. I mean, who... Who would do that? This is such a, it seems like a vanishingly small number of people would actually want to submit themselves to that, to submit the man to that. It's just, it's so implausible to me. Yeah. Well, and I think that back in the day when um, women were expected to maintain a quote-unquote pure lifestyle, um, it was even, it's even more ridiculous to think that they would um, go public was something that was supposed to be shameful. Um, And if they did have regrets about it, if it was consensual and they had regrets, even more reason to to not tell anybody about it, to just keep it quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think that, you know, that that myth um, unfortunately persists, and it persists in some police departments, unfortunately. Um, But it's it's a myth. It's it's just a myth. And uh, it's unfortunate that... So many people buy into that myth. Um, I know a lot of young men who who feel that way as well. Um, that you know they have to be extra super careful because if they don't, they can just be dragged into court and their lives are ruined. And while I don't think it's a mistake for anybody, male or female, to be extra careful with their lives, um, I think the idea that you know there's just numerous women out there lurking, waiting to ruin your life. <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly misogynistic. I mean, the I I basically just agree with everything you say. It's uh it's a woman hating idea, um, and one yeah. that has 
very little basis in reality, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me about this De- Department of Justice report. What kind of things do they look into? Do they look into things other than processing rape kits, for example? Um, this particular report was focused on the medical forensic exam, which is the uh, exam that produces the rape kit. So that was really, I mean, there's actually, there's a ton to say about it in terms of who has access and how it's funded and how it's stored. So, I mean, it was it was a lengthy report, but this was the main focus. Um, it did get a little bit into cultural ideas about rape, um, some of the things that we were just talking about. For instance, to talk to um, anonymous victims and ask them about the way they were treated when they filed their reports and... Um, you know, a lot of the responses were really heartening. Uh, nurses were incredibly empathetic. Uh, people were sensitive. Uh, the police was uh, diligent and helpful. But there were definitely um, opposing voices, people who said, I felt disrespected, I felt shame. The person asked me how much I had been drinking. Uh, the person uh, treated me as if I had a mental illness, like all kinds of really upsetting reports, too, and I think it's to the the overall uh, study's credit that they included these sort of personal anecdotes, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Overall, I I mean, I did not study the whole report, but from what I've seen of the report, I was kind of heartened by it, that it it sounds like a lot of women are getting what they needed and uh, and what they need when they go into the hospital. Uh, One of the interesting things that I read in the report and that you brought out in your article is that um, if women choose not to prosecute, and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of women who choose not to prosecute, um, they don't do the rape kit in a lot of cases. Right. That's correct. So... So it doesn't leave any option in case the woman changes her mind after, you know, after she adjusts to the trauma of what she's been through. Right, and that's a big problem. Um, And I think they said it's between 90 and 95% of the women who request the exam, um, that percent also goes to the police and says, hey, I want to open an investigation. Um, And so for that pretty small minority that doesn't do that, um, they, this report kept track of who changed their mind and later said, all right, well, I'm glad I have the rape kit because I do want to open an investigation. And only about 1% of those women, um, of, of the women changed their mind. Um, yeah. And so the question is, um, how do we get more women to change their mind? Because the goal is really to um, bring more of these cases to justice and reduce mm-hmm. some of some of the stigma and shame. Um, and one recommendation floated by the authors of the study was maybe we can have a system where victims can report anonymously and they don't have to give their names, but they can submit the rape kit with the DNA evidence and the police can process that um, and mm. put the DNA in a database and, you know, match it if suspects come up again and again. And yeah, I thought that yeah. was a really brilliant idea. This is, yeah, I think that's great. Um, but there again, you're talking money, you know, and, mm-hmm. and who's going to pay for it. Whenever you talk about uh, anything like that, it, you're talking about money. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. it, the rape kits just don't fall from heaven. Somebody has to pay for them. Um, and the processing, what you, did you say it was about $1,500 to process? 
Yeah, it can be it can be less. It can be five hundred to fifteen hundred about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, somebody has to pay for that, and so that's always a consideration when mm-hmm. we make decisions, when legislators make decisions that this will happen and that will happen. Um, they really have to give a lot of thought to who's going to pay for it. Is it the feds that are going to pay mm-hmm. for it? I'm uh, I'm thinking of a situation a while ago, a couple years ago, where the feds came through and said that on child custody, they would help with identifying, you know, from their databases and everything. The feds would help identify uh, deadbeat dads, but the mm-hmm. states had to pay them yeah. for doing that. Okay? Yeah. So then the states immediately, at least some states, um, including my state, immediately started charging the the, the um, recipient of, uh, the supposed recipient of the uh, child support for the the recovery of the money. Oh, um, my God. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I was outraged when I heard that, and so I actually made some calls to legislators and to our, our department, um, that, that cover that, and I was told, well, my initial uh, answer was, well, the federal government has us doing this. No, the federal government does not require that you do this. federal government requires that you pay for it. It doesn't mm-hmm. mandate how you collect from it, you know, for it. Right. And right. then that got me, you know, a few hang-ups, and uh, eventually um, it just became obvious that the reason that they were charging the recipient of the child support, and it was $25 each check, um, was because it was easier to collect from the recipient. They had the money, mm-hmm. you know, they recovered the money, they can just, you know, take their, their little cut before they even send it on. Mm-hmm. My, you know, my response to that was, wait a minute, if I have a bad, bad debt um, and the company wants to collect, I have to pay the costs of collection. That's added on to what I owe. Right. Right. So how come, you know, these deadbeat dads didn't have that added on to what they owed? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it defies logic, and I think a lot of times decisions are made simply because of the money that end up hurting the person that the, the whole thing is supposed to be helping. And so I, I'm rambling here, aren't I? I <laughs> no, no, I think it's... It's a great point, and it's sort of there's a mirror image of that of that observation in the DOJ report, which is that you know these victim compensation funds, the the money piles that are set aside to recoup victims for damages and loss, um, these are really heavily strained by um, by rape kits, and there are alternatives out there. You could use a law enforcement fund. You could use a prosecution fund, but for some reason, it's a lot easier to skim off um, the funds for victims than it is to skim off from the funds for prosecutors and police departments. Yep. And it just it yep. seems Absolutely. kind of bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then the the you know the blithe answer of well, we're required. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the the case of these rape kits, uh, you know, it's a significant amount. I'm thinking of, of children's hospitals, for example. Um, out here in Seattle, we have a wonderful fund for our children's hospital. They do fundraising every year for uncompensated expenses. Uh, mm. Uncompensated expenses are the expenses that are not paid by insurance. Um, right. You know, you, you have insurance and you have to pay 
you know, they pay 80%, you pay 20%. Well, 20%, if you have a couple of hundred thousand dollar procedures, is huge. And so Mm -hmm. um, our hospital, I guess it's the auxiliary that started it, I don't know, um, but they basically started a fund for uh, uncompensated um, care. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why we couldn't do the same kind of thing with these rape kits if money is such a huge issue. You know, let's have fundraisers. We have fundraisers for all sorts of things. Um, Yeah. So why not something like that? If it would help um, cut through the red tape and get these kits processed, I I think it would be a great idea. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, though, we're in the real world, and um, one of the things with the rape kits is you mentioned the storage of them. Where are they stored? Because in that report, it said that they, uh, when stored, the material will last, be good, for anywhere from two to ten years or more. Where mm-hmm. are they stored? And why the variance and how long the, the, the information will stay you know, accurate and available? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, most rape kits are stored in law enforcement facilities. Um, they're the usual evidence, evidence lockers, and those places are supplied with all the things you need to keep the evidence as fresh as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so that's great. Uh, the problem is that, you know, those are finite spaces, and as more kits get processed, as more people come forward, um, mm-hmm. they're going to have trouble fitting everything in, especially if um, they, you know, if these are unreported crimes that are being held in the hopes that someone changes their mind and opens an investigation. Anyway, so, yes, most people or most kits are stored in police department evidence lockers. There are some medical uh, facilities that also will store rape kits, uh, some bigger hospitals, some clinics. Um, and those, I, you know, I think the, the impression I got from the report is that the authors believe those spaces should be utilized more um, than they are right now. Mm-hmm. Well, but in all fairness, those uh, facilities are also storing all sorts of information for all sorts of cases, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, it's uh, it's competing against other crimes, you know, as far as, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I hate to be that crass about it, but that's kind of what it is. And so then we come right. full circle to, you know, how seriously do we... Um, you know, how how seriously do we consider rape when we consider crimes? Um, mm-hmm. You know, most people will say it's right up there, you know, rape, kidnapping, murder. Um, right, But right. in actuality, is that really the case? Right, and it's just, it's shocking to me. I think we were talking a little bit about this before uh, we went on air, but um, the number of prosecutors who believe that, oh, if it's a she, if it's a she said, she said case, um, there's no possibility of a conviction. We shouldn't bring this forward. Um, and they discourage women from reporting and from trying to put their rapists in jail um, because they say even if you have a strong testimony, um, that's all you have, and there's no way that you'll find justice, and that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read an article last night that really I'm, – I'm, kind of searching real quick to see if I can find it, um, where a rapist spent 15 years in jail. He was uh, accused and found guilty of raping 40 women, uh, 40 different women, 
and he went to prison for 15 years. He got out, mm-hmm. and with two, within two months, he was convicted of raping again. Mm-hmm. And so he spent more time in jail. And he is now out on... Uh, he's been kicked free of the, the, the system. Um, he served his time, and so he's free. And, mm-hmm. of course, there's a lot of outrage about it, but there's a, you know, there's a limit to how long, you know, I mean, if he served his sentence, I mean, realistically, they can't really uh, keep him any longer. But right. this man who had, you know, been convicted of so many rapes, I mean, you know if he's been convicted of that many, he's probably committed a whole lot more. I always think of the traffic, the speeding ticket. You know, you get a mm-hmm. speeding ticket, and how many times have you sped out on the, you know? <laughs> so right. for right. Every, every speeding ticket you get, you probably were out there speeding, several times, if not more, uh, and didn't get a ticket. And so I think it's the same with the rapes. If this guy was uh, attached to 40 rapes, there were probably a lot more. And um, yet he's out. And I'm pretty sure I'd I'd be willing to bet next month's lunch money that he will reoffend within a couple months because that's that's what he does. Um, If we had all of those rape kits and we could attach the information from his DNA to other rape kits, maybe we could keep it, you know, re-prosecute for others and keep him in prison a lot longer. Does that make sense? Did, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this idea of even if the woman chooses not to prosecute, you know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, attaching that information, you know, that uh, even even if, even if this woman doesn't choose to personally say, yes, I am a victim, um, if, if they had that information available, they might be able to get this guy and a number of other things that would keep him in prison. So that's just yeah. my thought. And and so I'm pretty interested in the storage of this DNA. And um, in, Now, there was a law, or I don't know whether it was a state law or a federal law that came out a few years ago requiring states to process those kits. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, um, I know that there's some in, uh, I think, Colorado and Illinois and Texas that are, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they've been passed, but there are bills in those states right now that are requiring um, requiring law enforcement to process the kit. Um, there may okay. be others that I, I'm not aware of. Yeah. Um, Katie, we have a caller. Uh, let me Great. go to the caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, my name is Hi. Chris. What's your name? What's your Chris. first name? Chris. Thank you for calling in, Chris. What did you have to share with us? Um, I just heard you speak of this article you read where someone raped 40 different women. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard of that, but that is just almost un- unbelievable. Um, and then you were talking about um, about the seriousness and how long we keep these people incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if someone, mm, pardon me, if someone can be convicted of 40 different rapes, the best thing that can be done is that the person should serve their time back to back, not all at the same time, but serve like 15 years times 40 
you know, not ah, get out of yeah. prison because it, that's terrible. If you're going to, I mean, raping anybody is terrible. But, yeah, and like you said, you know, with any crime, you get caught once. You probably did it 20 times. So yeah. somebody like that does not belong in our society. They have a problem, and and from what I know, um, as far as what I've heard um, and it's been on TV. People who rape do not do it for the sex. They do it to have power over someone. Absolutely. That's dangerous, in my opinion. That is a very dangerous person. I would put them up there with a, someone who murders. You know, they mm-hmm. like power. The murder is not because you want to kill the person in, most, in a lot of cases. It's because of the power that you feel the God-like effect, you know, and, you know, I, I like this discussion you're having, and it's very important, and, you know, I, I just, you know, there's too many times, and here's a problem that I see, the rape kits, the test, a lot of the times people can argue those because what they really show is if somebody had sex or, or not, and so... Somebody, the man can say, oh, well, we had sex consensually or or whatever. So it's, you know, I wish there, that there was a better way, you know, maybe by um, if there's um, a show, like some kind of sign of her trying to fight back. If mm. he has a, you know, that way we can prove that it was rape. And honestly... You know, we have the Eighth Amendment, so there's no cruel and unusual punishment. But, you know, in this case, and I support the Constitution 100%, but in this case, it's kind of unfortunate because I feel like if you're going to rape somebody, then, you know, hopefully you can go to prison and get raped yourself because Ooh, you need yeah. to go with that guilt. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, uh, you brought up an interesting point because, you know, in the history of, of rape, um, there used to be a lot of, uh, uh, I'm talking like 20 years ago, um, that unless the woman did show some signs of uh, physically fighting back, it was pretty much impossible to uh, prove rape. Um, and it was probably pretty much impossible to even prosecute it. Um, when we came up with DNA testing, then that helped a lot. But there are still a lot of people who think that if she doesn't show any bruising, if she doesn't show, you know, a, a knife wound or something, then she didn't fight back and it must have been consensual. And yet, the irony about that is, every, uh, without exception, every article or lecture that I've ever been to tells women that if they are in that situation, do not fight back. Mm. Katie, have you had that experience? Because you're more likely to be killed, I guess. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, preoccupation with the physical evidence of force really misses the point, which is that rape can be these incredibly ambiguous and blurry or perceived to be these incredibly ambiguous and blurry situations. And that's why I think a lot of people are really embracing the idea of affirmative consent. It's not the absence of a no that gives someone the right to have sex. It is the presence of a yes. Um, And 
it's true that a lot of women, I think, you know, they are raped, and it is a real rape, and it's not that they were jumped in an alley. It's that they were, you know, making out with someone, and they were drunk, and they didn't say yes, and the guy took advantage, um, and they yeah. didn't fight back. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you understand that, Chris? Do you? Yeah, I understand that completely. That makes a lot of sense that you don't want to get killed. I think statutory rape, um, or when somebody's drunk, when they don't consent to the sexual intercourse, uh, uh-huh. it's just as terrible. And the the way that the these the evidence can be looked at, it is very hard to distinguish between what is rough sex versus rape. And mm-hmm. so many different things, out, variables out there that can change the, or just, um, it's it's a shame that we can't get to the bottom of this. And what I would really like to point out is um, the prosecution. Um, yes. If you want to prosecute somebody for a rape, you know, just speak to the attorneys. And I would go for the highest, um, I don't know if there are different levels as far as there's, you know, first degree murder, second degree murder. I don't know. Yeah, there are degrees of of rape. Yeah. I would go for the highest one and our our, um, um, fellow Americans need to know and what what should happen is you go into court, you're charging this man with the highest count of rape and then it's up to the juries. And too many juries, they don't know about jury nullification. And not only do they look at the law, but they can, you know, they can make up their mind based on other things. It doesn't have to be, well, you know, it's not proven that there was rape. I mean, it should be like the jury convicts, you know, when they feel like, that is a rape, even though it looks like we can't prove it, they're still allowed to convict the person, whether the judge likes it or not. That's their their the the jury's duty to do is yeah. to convict and I think that they should convict more and because if somebody did not rape a woman, I think that that is obvious that they did not commit the rape, so if it's even you know, something that can be argued, it's usually the fact that she was raped. And I know somebody that was raped. And the person ended up getting away with it based on what I said about the rape test kit. He said they had rough sex and she was Mm -hmm. consenting and she was drunk and so was he. And, you know, I don't think that alcohol gives you permission to rape someone. I think you're right. I think it's... Oh. Yeah. I think you're right, Chris. Uh, I have one more... Sure. One more thing. Have you... Yeah, sure. ...noticed... Okay, have you noticed the um, undergarments, the... these panties or whatever they are? They actually prevent rape. Have you heard of this? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Katie, do you know? Okay. Yes. 
Oh, they're difficult to take off. Only the woman can oh. take them off. With- <laughs> oh. oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> that just sounds, you know, uh, modern day chastity belt or something. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, I. I, I have heard of those, Chris. I don't know how practical they are, uh, quite fra- frankly. Um, that can get you killed, too, now that I think about it. If you yep, have those on, that could lead yep. to death. And, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, in a utopia, we'd be able to stop mm-hmm. these kinds of things. But, you know, the person who commits yep. rape, you know, lock them up because... We need to get those people out of the society because apparently they have issues that put them to a point where they can't function in this society that we have. And, and I don't think they deserve to be amongst us, you know. But yeah. I'll go ahead and let you get back to your conversation. Okay. Thank you so much place. for your call, Chris. I really enjoyed your contribution. Thank you. All right. Thank you for um, having me. Okay, thank you. Um, Katie, I think he brought up some good points. One is that, um, you know, some of his ideas about um, um, showing um, signs of battle, if you will, um, those are things that uh, we as a culture accepted a lot uh, long ago, and I think a lot of people still think that there's merit to that argument. Um, The idea of somehow or other putting her in some sort of clothing so that he can't, you know, uh, you know, be penetrated or, you know, so she can't be penetrated or whatever. Those are notions that have been around for a long, long time. But yeah, they, yeah. They don't seem to really have a lot of basis in, in the real world. Um, yeah. I one think, of the things – yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um I was just going to say, I think it's sort of a medieval, it's funny that you said chastity belt, because it's sort of a medieval understanding of rape as this um, very black and white situation. Um, And I think the truth is that there's often tons of shades of gray. Um, But go ahead, sorry. Uh, Well, I was just going to bring up, uh, are you familiar with A.J. Delgado, who is a conservative writer, apparently? (laughs) Yes. Um, And she she wrote a National Review, yeah, National Review Online. And it's a rather provocative article. Basically what she's saying is um, right now the media and people who work um, with rape victims and and law enforcement are very concerned because on college campuses they are not taking, in many college campuses, and again there's been a federal report out on this, and some colleges like Harvard and, you know, um, are being investigated for either – hiding rape under the carpet or not taking it seriously or basically not, you know, discouraging women from reporting or uh, having consequences for rape. So college campus rape, big deal right now, very big deal. This A.J. Delgado, who's a a writer and, uh, again, on National Review Online, she says that women on college campuses are being brainwashed into thinking that they were assaulted that they really weren't assaulted. They're just being brainwashed into thinking that they have been, um, which is interesting. She argues that uh, the rape epidemic on college campuses is a myth, a liberal conspiracy that is brainwashing women to cry rape and is ruining the lives of innocent young college boys. She doesn't stop there. Delgado then goes on to state that women are partly to blame for society being skeptical about whether they were raped or not. 
To support her position, Delgado recounts a story from her senior year in college. She uses the anecdotal example of a friend who had a wild night with a man and stumbled into her Delgado's apartment the next day to recount the details of her torrid sexual encounter. And um, when the man did not call Amy back, she became uh, upset and started saying that he raped me. Okay. Um, I don't know who this writer is. She's not a, a writer that I have followed routinely. But I just keep, I mean, I read this report of her article. didn't read her article, but I read her report. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it was, to me, I just thought, you know, how old is this woman? Has she been around for the last 50 years? Because those are attitudes that, you know, 50 years ago you might have expected to hear. Right. And yet, oh, it's, pre- it's prehistoric. It's, um, I was going to say, I yeah, and, and yet I fear that it's a pretty common attitude. What has been your experience, Katie? I just, I honestly, she's she's a bit of a straw woman. I feel bad even sort of talking about her, mentioning her, because I really... I mean, maybe there are pockets of the internet that subscribe to that kind of um, that kind of talk. Maybe um, I really have barely heard reasonable people talk like that ever. Like, I think most people understand that the college rape epidemic is a real epidemic, and if we're seeing a rise in um, reports, it's because more women feel comfortable coming forward, and that's a good thing. Um, the notion. Yeah that women, again, and we talked about this, that women are so warped and neurotic um, that they are willing to ruin men's lives because they have a night of sex that they later regret. Um, I think most people don't, don't believe that. Um, and what were some of the other, oh, that, um, that all feminists believe, I think she said at one point in the article, all feminists believe that if alcohol is involved, consent is impossible. So, so basically, in well, actually, thing, there are state laws that say that in certain states well, <laughs> that well, you know no, you are no. not capable. So it's, it's, if you um, are, if you are incapacitated, nuanced, right? Yeah, nuanced, yeah. I mean, if you've been drinking, that doesn't necessarily mean you've been incapacitated. Uh, exactly, and I think that exactly. basically what those laws are saying is, when in doubt, don't. You know, um, which is pretty sound advice on anything. Um, right. Well, the idea so, is that you should be able to detect the presence of a yes. And so we're adults. We know that there's a difference between having some drinks and enthusiastically saying yes um, and a sort of mumbled, half-coherent um, grunt from someone who's half-passed out. Like maybe that – I mean, you can tell that that's not a real yes. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. And that's, that's what the laws say. Um, so the idea that feminism wants to take away the phenomenon of drunk sex, which can be very fun and enjoyable sex, is just crazy. Um, that's not at all what it's about or what these laws are saying. Yeah. Um, we have, I, I just went to RAIN, which is a wonderful, it's Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N. Wonderful website, wonderful organization. Um, and they actually, they have, Christina Ricci, Ricci, that movie star that played um, 
Well, I don't know. She, I know what she played in, but I can't remember it. It's like the Munsters or something. Um, and she is the national spokesperson for RAIN, which I wasn't aware of until I went to their website just now. But their statistics uh, says that out of every 100 rapes, 40 get reported to the police. Ten mm-hmm. lead to an arrest. Eight get prosecuted. Four lead to a felony conviction. Three rapists will spend even one day in prison. The other 97 will walk free. Right. And, I and think, that's... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that against the backdrop of those figures, it's, um, it's depressing to read a writer like um, A.J. Delgado saying that these reports are fabricated. Um, because yeah. the reports that do exist are such a small minority of the rapes that conceivably happen. Yeah, yeah. We have tackled such a big big subject today. Um, I'm trying to think of, of an area that we haven't discussed, and I think we've covered a lot, except for repercussions. Hmm. What is the repercussion for a woman um, who chooses not to report versus a woman who does report? Do you happen to know? That's um, kind of out of your bailiwick, but... What do you mean, like, psychological repercussions? Or, yeah, or yeah, like psychological, or? yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's really hard to generalize. Every woman is different, and there are, there are legitimate and real reasons that women don't want to drag their traumatic experiences into the courts and they don't want to report, and I think that those decisions are totally worth respecting, and they deserve our respect. So, you know, while we want, in a perfect world, every crime to be reported and every criminal to be brought to justice, I think that um, that the repercussions of coming forward and losing your privacy and feeling on display in that way, especially if the environment is kind of stigmatizing and and victim blames you or shames you, um, those repercussions are real. On the other hand... I can certainly imagine the pain of undergoing that kind of trauma and seeing the perpetrator walk free. So um, I think it's a really difficult balancing act for for these women. Yeah. I, it, it, just in the popular media, I've always uh, recently gotten the message that, you know, if you pursue it, you get a sense of empowerment that uh, you haven't lost control, you are still in control, and it helps you uh, recover or live with um, your rape e- more easily. I don't know if that's true, um, but it would be an interesting topic to to cover. Um, the other thing, you know, getting back, I had a little thought when you were talking about um, the definite yes as opposed to an indefinite no. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me I've seen some TV shows or movies or something. I, I don't listen to a lot or, or go to the movies a lot, but um, I've seen a couple of, of scenes where uh, the man actually says, um, you know, goes for that, that consent, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, it's kind of refreshing, actually, um, because yeah. usually, especially in the popular media, it's just a romantic moment that just happens, da 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 and so it is kind of a little, uh, you know, cultural change that I've happened to notice, is that it, there's been more than one... Um, TV show or movie or whatever that I've seen where the the guy actually does go for that 
uh, specific yet, um, and I had not really thought about it before you said that. What about men, Katie? There are men who are raped, um, and do they have the same issues with prosecution and rape kits and everything that women do? And, again, I'm asking you questions as if you are the rape expert, and I realize that I, I asked you to be on because of your expertise for your article on the DOJ report, but maybe you know these things. Um, I'm afraid I don't know much about the male victims of rape, except that they exist and they deserve our sympathy and probably more awareness than is out there now. Um, I think, but if I can just adjust the question of men a little bit more broadly uh, for a moment, I think that um, there's a kind of, we talked a little bit about misogyny and how this sort of grim and vindictive vision of women factors into the way we treat uh, rape victims. Um, and the way we doubt their testimonies. Um, but I think there's an equally sort of pernicious idea about men that's floating around. The idea that, you know, underneath every man walking down the street is a potential rapist and all he needs is a few drinks and suddenly he turns into a caveman and, you know, boys will be boys yeah. and they're awful and they all secretly want to rape women. That is not at all the case. It turns out that about, I think, um, what is it, like 8% of college campuses uh, of the men on a college campus um, are rapists, and these men tend to be serial rapists, and they are a completely different breed. They're just completely different than your Joe College average guy, um, mm-hmm. and they need to be stopped. So it's not yeah. that people speaking out against uh, rape are these man-haters who want to take away fun. Um, and to have this horrible idea about all men. It's really that we realize that, you know, there are certain criminals who are a minority, but they walk among us, they're in society, and these are the people we really need to uh, address our efforts um, toward, our prevention efforts and our prosecution efforts. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, on, on... Whenever we're talking about um, rape, I think Chris brought up a wonderful point. It is about power. It's not about mm-hmm. sex. Um, right. And for right. a while there, you know, several years ago, I know that, that uh, and some people still have this notion, well, just castrate them. That'll take care of the problem. No, it won't, because it's not about sex. It's about power. And right. rape is often done with uh, in- instruments, you know, or implements. Mm-hmm. So uh, it doesn't have to be a penis um, there to um, uh, create a rape and and to try and get that power over another person. So um, well-meaning as some of those people are when they say, well, let's just, you know, surgically fix them so they can't do it anymore, that's not going to solve any problem because it is about power. Right, Right. and And it's also barbaric and terrible. Um, Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, not even going there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a complicated issue. It's been around since the dawn of time, and there are so many misconceptions about it. One of the things that I'm seeing a lot in the media lately, Katie, is the term rape culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my notion of what that means. What's, what do you think it means? What How do you use it in the media? Or do you use I it in the that- media? We do. Um, we, the, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but um, where I've seen rape culture very broadly, it's talking about a set of beliefs and practices that um, sort of facilitate 
um, the guy at the expense of the of the victim, um, and that blame the victim maybe by saying, oh, she drank too much, she was wearing seductive clothing, she was asking for it. Um, and then the sort of complimentary attitude is boys will be boys, they don't mean any harm, um, this is, you know, what it's like to be young and experimenting with sex. Um, and also the practices on college campuses that protect men who may have been accused of rape. So, um, you know, deans encouraging women not to open investigations or to, you know, if a woman brings a charge against a classmate, they say, oh, you should move your residential college. You should move from one dorm to the next, and the guy has no consequences. So basically it's a way of really um, prioritizing the needs and interests of the perpetrator over those of the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, we're going back to we were talking off the air about that Steubenville race rape case, uh, which was just notorious um, because uh, well, we we don't have to reiterate what it is because uh, it was horrific. Um, but the comments after that, when these these young men from the football team um, were uh, arrested and, and went to trial for the horrific rape, um, so many of the comments in the news were from uh, supporters of these guys who said, well, this can ruin their lives, this can ruin their lives, and there wasn't any talk about what it's going to be doing to the victim's life. Um, And I think that that's very telling. I think that's very telling about our culture. And rape culture is different from patriarchy? Is that a question? Or Yep. uh, (laughs) That's why my voice went up at the end there. Oh, sorry. Absolutely. I think, I mean, it certainly has the the tinge and the aura of patriarchy about it, but it's a specific diagnosis. It's a way of saying that rape victims are diminished, are invisible, are not taken care of um, as a way. And so, yeah, it's very specific to sexual assault, I think. Katie, we've come to the end of our hour, and uh, I've learned a lot from you, and I've really enjoyed having you on the show, and uh, I will continue to enjoy reading your your work. Any final words, any final real quick words about the issue of rape and reporting rape? Um, Let's see, final words. I guess just the sort of the bromide that is so important and so true, even if it's been said a thousand times, but... There are tons of resources available for people who have suffered these crimes. Um, there are advocates. Uh, Rain that you mentioned is a great resource. Um, and I just hope that, that women who go through that um, feel empowered to find the help that they need. Yeah, thank you. And I happen to have the phone number for uh, the National Sexual Assault Hotline. This is a number you can call from anywhere in the United States. They'll direct you to some local services to help you. It is 1-800-656-HOPE, 1-800-656-4673. That's a number that you should call if you feel like you need some advice or some assistance or a support group, um, uh, whatever you need. If you have been sexually assaulted, they can direct you uh, to the services near you. So I would highly recommend RAIN. And if you want to learn more about um, rape and the statistics and what it means, go to their website, 
Um, that's R-A-I-N-N dot org. Thank you for joining us this week. I, I have learned a lot from you, Katie, and uh, I've learned a lot from our caller, Chris. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Chris, so I hope you keep listening. Meanwhile, join us next week for Three Women, Three Ways.